Father, where would we be without your great love for us? The thought is too much for us to even ponder. Amen. We can only say thank you that your love goes on and on and on. It is a steadfast love. Thank you that you so love the world and that you gave your only son. And that all you ask is that we believe in him and you give us eternal life. Perhaps there's no greater message than John 3.16. Father, open our eyes and our minds this morning to receive from you what you have for us through the reading and preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Take a seat real quick. I'm going to begin with about a 40-second video from the movie... Uh, as we talk about creation this morning, but from the movie Avengers Infinity War. And so whenever you're ready, David, get that up there. So that was one of the most popular um, movies. I think it came out in 2018. And I'm thinking of things to say while it slowly gets up there. So I'm running out of things to say, which is a shocking for some of you. So, yeah. You can start right there, it's fine, David. At the dawn of the universe, there was nothing. Then, boom. Big banks and six elemental crystals hurtling across the virgin universe. These infinity stones each controlled an essential aspect of existence. Space. Reality. Power. Soul. Mind and time. Thank you, David. Did you catch that? There we go. Let's see if we can get this working. There we go. This is the verse we'll look at this morning, Genesis 1-1. This is what they said, though. If I can get this working. There we go, how's that? At the dawn of the universe, there was nothing. Then the Big Bang sent six elemental crystals hurling across the virgin universe. Let me give you some perspective on just that movie, Avengers... Um, Infinity War. That whole Marvel series was one of the most, how do I put it, David Doyle, one of the most popular of all time, that whole series of movies. Large audience. That statement, at the dawn of the universe, there was nothing, then the Big Bang sent six elemental crystals hurling across the virgin universe is pretty much representative of what most people think about creation. And we've been looking at the fall of mankind, the corruption of mankind. We've been looking at Noah's Ark, and we're going to look at the flood. But before we look at the flood, um, 
the flood that God was going to use, that God did use to blot out the evil and corrupt first society, I want to take us back and look at the first six days of creation. What exactly does the Bible say about the creation of the universe? Now, we know what the world says, that there was nothing, and then all of a sudden there was a big bang and everything came into existence. And before I can even talk about the creation of the universe, I feel that I need to dive into this issue of evolution this morning. Because for years, the theory of evolution has been universally taught as fact in our educational institutions. And when it comes to the church, the general view of the majority of Christian people with respect to creation is kind of really summed up with two streams of thought. Uh, both ideologies are an attempt to harmonize evolutionary thought with belief in God. In essence, they say, yes, there's a God, and somehow God's involved in this evolutionary process. Have you heard that before, anybody? Yeah. Now, what we believe, or what is in the church, what is taught, is commonly thought of, is what we call theistic evolution. It's very similar to progressive creationism, which we'll get to in a minute here, but that God started creation, then evolution took over. Okay, you heard that before? Then there's progressive creationism, which in essence says this. Um, it was a term developed by Russell Mixter in the science department at Wheaton College that God started creation, evolution took over, but God progressively intervened into the process of evolution. Now, both views believe this, and they're very similar, but there are some differences, but both views, in essence, believe this, that God created the heavens and the earth over a period of billions of years, not six 24-hour days. That the Big Bang was God's way of producing stars and galaxies through billions of years of natural processes. And yes, they even created the infinity stones. That was a joke. Therefore, the earth and universe are billions of years old, not merely thousands of years old. Death and bloodshed have existed from the very beginning of creation and were not the result of Adam's sin. Man was created after the vast majority of earth's history of life and death had already taken place. The flood of Noah was local, not global, and it had little effect on the earth's geology, which shows billions of years of history. This is what is commonly taught and believed within the church. Uh, both views, theistic evolution and progressive creationism, they reject a literal interpretation of the book of Genesis. In fact, in recent years, theistic evolution or progressive creationism has received favorable publicity through Christian radio, television, magazines, and books. And the result has now been, result has been now that most Christian leaders and educators have allowed the teachings of evolution to one degree or another to be added to the Bible. Did you know that? For example, even though the Hebrew word for days in Genesis is the word 
Yom, Y-O-M, and it means literally one solar day or one 24-hour day. Uh, Christians do not believe, and these Christian leaders believe somehow that science has proven that the age of the earth is billions and billions of years old. The biblical account in Genesis is wrong. Therefore, it must be re-examined to line up with what science says is truth. Did you know that? Obviously, you're aware of, in essence, theistic evolution progressive creationism. You should be. It's been publicized. But in essence, what they're saying is the biblical account in Genesis is wrong. Now, historically, the church has always believed in a literal interpretation of Genesis chapters 1 through 11. But in the 1800s, scientists said that, that these rock layers that we see were laid down over millions of years. And so some church leaders, like Thomas Chalmers, the founder of the Free Church of Scotland, said, we can take the millions of years we can add it to the Bible and put it in a gap between Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Thus, gap theory was invented. Then church leaders said, we'll put in the days of creation millions of years, and the day-age theory was born. Ever since then, we've been trying inventive ways to fit millions of years into the Bible, Rejecting the literal interpretation of Genesis. Of course, after all of that, Darwin came along with his theory of evolution. And church leaders said, well, God uses evolution. Then come the Big Bang Theory, which I just mentioned. And of course, the church jumps on that bandwagon. Moving away from a literal reading of Genesis has profound implications because if the Bible, think about this, folks, if the Bible is wrong on the origins of the universe, then the Bible's authority on every other issue it addresses is called into question. This sermon series obviously is about what the Bible says about, in this case, we're talking about creation. I want you to see that the biblical doctrine of creation of the universe, it's of the utmost theological importance it can no longer be thought of as a, a secondary issue. And the choice is really simple. Either you believe what the Bible says in Genesis about creation, or you do not. If not, then you must find another explanation for how our universe came into being. And for most of the world, the explanation is found in the theory of evolution. Sometimes it's called naturalistic Evolution. Now, what exactly is evolution? And perhaps it's best understood in simple terms like this. Over time, by chance, matter evolved into the entire universe. That's the simplest definition I could find of what evolution is. Now, don't take my word for it. What do the proponents of evolution say about evolution? Well, Jacques Monod, he's a Nobel Prize winning biologist, in a book he wrote called Chance and Necessity, wrote this, that man is alone in the universe's unfeeling immensity out of which he emerged by chance. Chance alone is the source of every innovation. Chance alone is the source of all creation in the biosphere. Pure chance, absolutely free but blind, 
is at the very root of the stupendous edifice of evolution. So humanity is nothing but chance. J.W. Burrow wrote in his introduction to Charles Darwin's The Origin of Species this. He says, nature, according to Darwin, was a product of blind chance and a blind struggle and man, a lonely, intelligent mutation, scrambling with the brutes for his sustenance. To some, the sense of loss was irrevocable. It was as if an umbilical cord had been cut and men found themselves part of a cold, passionless universe. Unlike nature as conceived by the Greeks, the Enlightenment and the rationalist Christian tradition, Darwinian nature held no clues for human conduct and no answers to human moral dilemma. So according to these two leading evolutionists, man is left as a lonely, intelligent mutation produced out of chance. He was cut loose from any meaning whatsoever. Now, here's the thing. The results of this type of thinking are far-reaching. More than I realized, and perhaps more than you realized, in 1989, the scientist Henry Morris wrote an excellent book called The Long War Against God. And in that book, he shows the impact of evolutionary theory on the world. He reveals that the irrefutable fact that the almost universal belief in evolution that permeates every area of human thinking has affected every area of human life, from how we view the physical world to how we view the biological sciences, social sciences, behavioral sciences, psychology, humanities, liberal arts, philosophy, and it has even affected religion. In fact, here's a direct quote from his book. He says, evolution's lie permeates and dominates modern thought in every field. That being the case, it follows inevitably that evolutionary thought is basically responsible for the lethally ominous political developments and the chaotic moral and social disintegrations that have been accelerating everywhere. How does evolutionary theory or thought play out in society? Well, according to evolution, man is quantitatively better than animals, i.e., we're, we're different because we have a bigger brain, but qualitatively, we're not better because we're not created in God's image. Therefore, it is ethically wrong to violate the rights of other animals who are literally our little brothers or little sisters. This thinking, of course, led to the creation of PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And their national director, Ingrid Newkirk, made this famous statement. You recognize this? A rat is a pig is a boy. In other words, there is no difference between a rat and a pig and a boy. In all higher forms of life, and according to her, the highest form of life is a rat, they're all to be considered equal. Now, if the consequences of evolutionary thought ended there, I mean, that would be one thing. Yes, it strips humanity of any dignity and meaning. Yes, it is stupid to think this way. It's irrational. It's depressing. It is immoral. It's humiliating to humanity. But unfortunately, it does not end there. 
The results of this type of thinking, this evolutionary thought, are catastrophic and deadly. For those of you that, that attend the adult science school class, we're reading the book called Reflections on the Existence of God by Richard Simmons III. It's a series of essays, and in this book, you might recall, he recounts the, the crime of the century that took place in the 1920s called the Leopold Loeb case. Think of it as the O.J. Simpson case. We recognize that one. It involved two teenage boys, 18-year-old Richard Loeb and his best friend, 17-year-old Nathan Leopold. And Loeb was a smart young man and was fascinated with crimes and mysteries, and his great desire was to commit the perfect crime. And Leopold, who was equally intelligent, was fascinated with philosophy, particularly the teachings of Friedrich Nietzsche, the famous atheist who was also deeply influenced by Darwin's evolutionary theory. Leopold, influenced by Nietzsche, believed that legal obligations don't apply to superior beings. And so when Loeb discussed with him the possibility of trying to commit the perfect crime, he went along with it. They kidnapped a young boy in their neighborhood, bludgeoned him to death in the back of their car, poured acid all over him so he wouldn't be recognizable, and dumped him. They eventually were caught and confessed, and their families were very wealthy, hired the top legal team in the country led by Clarence Darrow, Mr. Darrow employed a brilliant legal strategy that saved him for the death sentence, and his main argument to the jury was this. Is there any blame attached to, because somebody took Nietzsche's philosophy seriously and fashioned his life on it? Your Honor, it's hardly fair to hang a 19-year-old boy for the philosophy that was taught him at the university. In other words, he was saying that you can't execute these young men for following the teaching they received in college. What was he teaching? Nietzsche's evolutionary godless worldview. They just happened to act on it. See, that had become the foundation of their thinking. Now, if that was it, it ended there, that'd be one thing, but unfortunately it doesn't end there. It goes on a much larger scale if you consider Adolf Hitler, whose life was profoundly impacted by Nietzsche's writings and evolutionary thinking. He wrote in Mein Kampf, which is my struggle. Did I put this up here? Yes, I did. He who would live must fight. He who does not wish to fight in this world where permanent struggle is the law of life has not the right to exist. I do not see why man should not be just as cruel as nature. Nature likes bastards only a little, all that is now a pure race in this world is trash. Of course, this is, what is he talking about here? Natural selection, survival of the fittest. That's all taken from Darwinian evolution. On October 10th, 1941, the battle for Moscow, this is what he stated. Today's war is nothing but a struggle for the riches of nature. By virtue of an inherent law, these riches belong to him who conquers them. That's in accordance with the laws of nature. By means of the struggle, the elites are continually renewed. The law of selection justifies this incessant struggle by allowing the, by allowing the survival of the fittest. Christianity is a rebellion against natural law, a protest against nature. Taking to its logical extreme, Christianity would mean the systematic cultivation of the human failure. 
In other words, why was there World War II? It all came from an idea, all came from a thought that originated in the mind of Adolf Hitler who was influenced by Nietzsche and Darwin. And so in order to influence the German people's worldview, Hitler ordered that a propaganda film be produced be shown in German movies. In the film, there's a psychotic, psychiatric institution, rather, and a narrator who declares, whatever fate, wherever fate puts us, notice that there's no God, it's just fate. Wherever fate puts us, whatever station we must occupy, only the strong will prevail in the end. Everything in a natural world that is weak for life will ineluctably be destroyed. In the last few decades, mankind has sinned terribly against the law of natural selection. We haven't just maintained life unworthy of life, we haven't even allowed it to multiply. The descendants of these six people look like this. And it wasn't surprising that three years later, and I'm not talking about the Jews yet, after the film had been released, the German mental institutions began gassing to death thousands of innocent patients. Of course, Hitler would go on to destroy Jews, blacks, and gypsies. He clearly believed he was improving the human race by ridding society through natural selection of inferior beings and creating a master race, and there was nothing immoral in what he was doing. You don't think ideas have power? They do. Eric Fromm was a social psychologist and a German Jew who fled the Nazi regime. He wrote this, the religion of social Darwinism belongs to the most dangerous elements within the thoughts of the last century. It aids the propagation of ruthless national and racial egoism by establishing it as a moral norm. If Hitler believed in anything of all, then it was in the laws of evolution, which justified and sanctified his actions, and especially his cruelties. Douglas Kelly wrote in a book called Creation and Change, there is no doubt that the biblical vision of man as God's creature, whom he made in his own image, has had the most powerful effect on human dignity, on liberty, on the expansion of the rights of the individual, on political systems, on the development of medicine, on every other area of culture. How different from the humanistic viewpoint of man as merely an evolved creature, not made in God's image, because there is no God. Such a premise has enabled the Marxist totalitarian states conveniently to liquidate millions of their citizens because of the assumption that there is no transcendent person in whose image those citizens are created. No being to give those citizens a dignity and a right to exist beyond that which the state determines. This is really astounding. The head of the Nazi labor front said that in Hitler's massacres, said that Hitler's massacres expressed, and I'm going to quote this, the highest and best in manhood. Julian Huxley, a biologist and an evolutionist, wrote Essays of a Humanist in 1964. He said this, evolution is the most powerful, most comprehensive idea that's ever arisen on earth. You are familiar with theistic evolution, progressive creationism, right? You've heard of some of these ideas, right? That I went through about how the world was created. 
How many of you at least heard some of that stuff, just by a show of hands? Yeah. Theistic evolution, progressive creationism, what I just went through in the very beginning of the sermon. You've heard of that, right? But what is that? That's evolutionary thought. See how far it's permeated even within the church? You go back 200 years ago, it didn't exist. Evolutionary thought is indeed deadly. Now it pains the heart to read these cruelties. What also saddens me is this. A survey was taken a few years ago which revealed that in one of America's leading evangelical accrediting associations, this membership boasted scores of evangelical Bible colleges and universities, only five or six college-level course schools remained solidly opposed to the old earth view of creation, i.e., the majority believe the earth is billions of years old. So this, the university, Christian universities and colleges and seminaries are, believe now, majority of them, that the earth is billions and billions and billions of years old. See, they're open to a reinterpretation of Genesis 1 through 3 that not only accommodates evolutionary theories, but they also argue that a literal approach to Genesis, now listen to this, is detrimental to the credibility of Christianity. You cannot take Genesis 1 through 11 and 1 through 3 Literally, it's detrimental to Christianity. But here's the kicker. <laughs> Watch this. These people are more convinced of the scientific credibility of Darwinian evolution than Charles Darwin himself. Did you know that? When he wrote The Origin of Species, it had critical reviews from the very outset. The scientific world was almost wholly against it. In later years, Thomas Huxley, speaking of the year 1860, described the situation by saying it, and I quote again, the, supporter, the supporters of Mr. Darwin's views were numerically extremely insignificant. There is not the slightest doubt that if a general council of the scientific community had been held at this time, we should have been condemned by an overwhelming majority. They rejected his book. And if you read anything of Darwin's life, you find he's continually filling all of his writings with tremendous doubts. For example, he says in the sixth chapter of his Origin of Species, he says this, long before having arrived at this point of my, at this part of my work, a crowd of difficulties will have occurred to the reader. Some of them are so grave to this day I can never reflect on them without being staggered. In his chapter on, on instinct, he conceded this. Such simple instincts as bees making a beehive could be sufficient to overthrow my whole theory. But why would he say that? You're talking about immense complexity in what bees do, in order, which is completely against the theory of evolution. And to think, he said, that the eye, which is incredibly complex, could evolve by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest possible degree. In his chapter on imperfections 
in the geological record, he complained that the complete lack of fossil intermediates in all geological records was perhaps, and I quote, the most obvious and greatest, gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. Darwin wrote that he was deeply conscious of his own ignorance. In his personal letters, he wrote about having awful misgivings of having deluded myself and devoted myself to a fantasy. Did you know that about him? But Darwin was determined to escape from a personal God at all costs. In fact, he literally wrote this, I am determined to escape from design and a personal God at all costs. In his attempt to escape from God, his emotional life atrophied under the strain of the battle. Religious feelings disappeared and the world became cold and dead. And in the end, Darwin apparently received a taste of his own medicine he had deprived the universe of God and all meaning, and so he had deprived himself of all meaning. James Moore wrote a biography of Darwin called The Life of a Tormented Evolutionist. In some of his letters, Darwin referred to his theory, and I quote, as the devil's gospel. And even after he had sort of won the day, because he did liberate men from the God of the Bible and free people to enjoy their sin without the thought of a judge, his psychological suffering was so profound that his physical symptoms continued. He was literally not only killing God for himself, but killing God for everybody else. And one writer says this, his life was one long attempt to escape from the church and to escape from God. It is this that explains so much that would otherwise be incongruous in his life and character. Philip Johnson wrote a book in 1988 called Reason in the Balance, He's a University of California Berkeley law professor, a former U.S. Supreme Court clerk. In the book, he turned off his cell phone, and he exposes how the legal establishment has adopted naturalistic assumptions in its thinking to exclude any mention of a creative intelligence. In other words, evolutionary thinking has even seeped into law. But he also exposes evolution as a false religion. This is what he what he exposes. Number one, evolution is pure science. It's a closed system founded on reality and not an illusion of God. See that? Evolution is equal to rationality because it excludes miracles and the supernatural. They have to say that because they say that by pure rational or by pure random blind chance, somehow that is rational. Evolution is liberating because it eliminates God and his commands, which restricts free sexual behavior. Evolution is democratic because every man is his own source of moral judgment. See, they're escaping from God. And evolution is broad because it allows a belief in God, just not the biblical God. And it is amazing, actually, because what we find when we uncover the truth of evolution, we find people fighting reason, Embracing absurdity, all in an attempt to avoid accountability to the eternal judge. In fact, in their attempt to avoid God, they prove his creation and existence. Herbert Spencer was an English philosopher, a psychologist, a biologist, 
anthropologist and a sociologist famous for his hypotheses of social Darwinism. It was Herbert Spencer, by the way, who originated the expression survival of the fittest. He coined in, a, in his book called Principles of Biology in 1864. He died in 1903, but not before he discovered that all reality, all reality that exists in the universe can be contained in five categories. Time, force, action, space, and matter. Now think about that. Time, force, action, space, and matter. That is a logical sequence. Where have we read that before? Well, look at this. See that? Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, what's that? Time. That's when time was created, folks. God always existed outside of time. He created time in the beginning. There's time. God is the cause of the force. Created is the action. The heavens, that's space. And the earth, that's matter. All the things that he discovered. Which, by the way, of course, God already knew because he created it all. Now, either you believe Genesis chapter 1 or not. If you don't, the only explanation you are left with is random chance. Perhaps another way of looking at these two options is this. Look at it this way. Evolutionary view says this. The ultimate reality is impersonal matter. Again, remember I showed you in the, I think I, maybe I did here, but I did in the Sunday school class, that, that Marvel movie, Doctor Strange, matter is all there is. All we are is matter. No God exists. The creation view says ultimate reality is an infinite, personal, loving God. Evolutionary view says the universe was created by chance without any ultimate purpose. The creation view says the universe was lovingly created by God for a specific purpose. And of course, what's that purpose? To glorify God. Evolutionary view, man is the product of impersonal time, plus chance, plus matter. As a result, no man has eternal value or dignity, nor any meaning other than that which is subjectively derived. Creation view says man was created by God in his image, is loved by God. Because of all this, all men are endowed with eternal value and dignity. Their value is not derived ultimately from themselves, but from the source transcending themselves, God himself. Evolutionary view, morality is defined by every individual according to his own views and interests. Morality is ultimately relative because every person is the final authority for his views. Creation says morality is defined by God and immutable because it is based on God's unchanging holy character. Evolutionary view, the afterlife brings eternal annihilation or personal extinction for everyone. Creation view, the afterlife involves either eternal life with God or eternal separation from him. Either glories of heaven or what? The terrors of hell. But, folks, here's, here's the final point. Okay? It may shock you, but evolution does not exist. It does not exist. It has been 
scientifically proven to be impossible. A.E. Wilder Smith wrote a book called The Scientific Alternative to Neo-Darwin Evolutionary Theory. In this book, he demonstrates the absurdity of evolution on the basis of encoded information in the DNA of living organisms. Now, I ask you this. We know now about this coded information DNA. Did Darwin know about this at the time it was written? Of course not. But when science looks at life, they have discovered the more complex it becomes. For example, the human body is made up of trillions of cells. We all know that. In just one of those cells, mind you, just one of those cells, the amount of genetic information in one of those cells has been estimated to fill at least 1,000 books of 500 pages. Did you know that? That is a lot of information. Now, in every living organism is a thing called DNA. We all know that. We're taught that. We all know that that DNA, if you didn't remember or not, it has a code. The operation of that living organism is dependent on that encoded information. And what science has discovered is that every different living thing has a completely different code. For example, a monkey would have what? A monkey code, right? That code is what makes a monkey behave like a monkey. But there's no code in the monkey's DNA, and we know this because we studied it, to turn that monkey, guess what, into a man. Make it simpler. If you have a yellow flower and a blue flower, that yellow flower has DNA in it, and it's a living organism, and it has a DNA code that makes that yellow flower make a yellow flower. Same thing with the blue flower. There is nothing in the yellow flower that has coded information that will make it make a blue flower. Okay? So the question is this. Where did the code come from so that man evolved from monkeys or apes to man? Now, scientists agree it couldn't evolve out of nowhere because it's too complex. Again, one of the trillions of cells is a thousand books of 500 pages. It's just simply not possible. It's too complex, it's too precise. And we've looked, it isn't there. So Wilder Smith went on to write this, and these are experts, I am not a scientist, biologist or any of this stuff, this is why I'm reading so many quotes. He says, neither the primeval amoeba type of cell nor the inorganic matter of which it is constructed contains such highly specialized holistic information which is necessary to transform from the alleged amoeba into, say, an anthropoid ape. Is it legitimate to assume that such incredible amounts of information arose spontaneously out of thin air by pure chance? That's what they want us to believe. But if the law of entropy is true, which it is, that matter is breaking down, things are getting worse. So how can things be getting more complex and more ordered simultaneously? And the evolutionists say that given time, gradual mutations make this possible. Really? 
That's what you want us to believe. But here's the thing, it's just not scientifically possible. Dr. Werner Gert, a director and professor at the German Federal Institute of Physics and Technology, answered this question, can new information originate in a living organism through mutations? You with me so far? In other words, can a yellow flower mutate enough so that it can turn into now a blue flower? And they've studied this stuff, and this is what they say. It says, mutations can only cause changes in existing information, and there can be no increased information. And in general, the result of mutations is injurious. In other words, you have a cell and it mutates. Eventually, what does that cell turn into? Cancer, right? It's not getting better. It's getting what? Worse. Well, why? The law of entropy. It says, new blueprints for new functions or or new organs cannot arise. Mutations cannot be the source of new information. Now this information is all out there, but you don't hear about it, right? Because the universal belief is that we're here by evolution. Now since science has proven that evolution is not possible, here's the thing, why then is it universally accepted? And it's usually accepted as fact. Well, I'm going to close with these verses. In fact, you can turn there if you want. But it perfectly sums everything up as to why this is the case. Romans 1, 18 to 23. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, what, notice what it says here. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The truth is out there about God, about creation, and about evolution, and what do we do? We suppress the truth. This is right, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, they've been clearly seen. They're being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. You could say they became futile in their belief of the theory of evolution. You could insert that right there. It's a speculation. Because they rejected the truth about God and suppressed the truth about God in order to keep the world blind to God, their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. You have to be a fool to believe in the theory of evolution. And that's just stay what it is. It's a theory. And we've moved away from that to an extent to what we call intelligent design. And again, I said this morning, I'll say it again, they won't call intelligent design God, but it's exactly what it is. There's too much information, too much scientific data, too much evidence that evolution is not possible. You have to have more faith to believe in that than to believe in a creator. And they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Evolution is universally accepted as fact. 
because man wants to live life without accountability to an eternal creator. Now I've shown you this morning how that thought has impacted every area of society. It is catastrophic and it is deadly. And so what I thought was going to be, well, I'll just start talking about maybe Genesis day one and two this morning. <laughs> when I started looking at this, I was like, oh my gosh. And so I needed to address, and we're done with the sermon here, this idea of evolution and just in a nutshell give you the truth about that. And you can do your own study and so on and read all these books and they're going to put you to sleep. But it comes down to the application point when it comes to creation, what do you believe? And we're going to look at what the Bible says about. So we're going to look at what the Bible says about creation. Okay? From a literal perspective. We won't bring in the gap theory and theistic evolution and progressive creationism and all that. We're going to look at the text and see what the text says. Because that is what, by the way, up until the 1800s, the church historically has always believed. But we are in a generation that does not believe that. And there's a desperate need for a Christian worldview, once again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you that we are nothing like what evolutionary theory and thought says. That we're a product of random chance. That we're a product of an indifferent universe. That we're reduced to just chemical reactions. That we're alone and unintelligent. No, we do have meaning and significance. We, we do love. We are rational because you are all those things and more. And you made us in your image. And I pray that we would worship you this week as Elohim, God our creator. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Have a great Sunday. Enjoy the day, and God bless you.